Hey everyone, it is Monday night and we are getting ready to start another episode of our online book club. It is called Chapter Chat. So we are going to wait for um, Michael, who is my co-host, to join and then we will get started. So hope you guys are having a great day. It's Monday, which used to be not my favorite day, but I'm telling you, I kind of like Mondays now. Here is Mike. How's it going? How are you? Good. How are you doing? It's Monday, so I'm doing great. I know. I know. T-G-I-M. <laughs> T-G-I-M. The best day yes. of the week. So I, I do my reading all throughout the week. Yep. I, tr I try not to do it in one sitting because I like to really dive deep into it. And I just it just makes me think about these Monday nights, 8 o'clock. The great audiences we've been getting and everyone yes. and our friend at Molten Speeches has joined us and Callie yes. has joined us. Callie Knight has joined us. Uh, e everybody, it's just so great to see you all here. We're just getting started. So send some invites to your friends. Let them know. Get yep. off for a little bit. Invite your friends. Bring them back because tonight is going to be a good one. And they're, yeah. they're all good ones. Who am I kidding? Yes, hey. they are. Yeah. So, Mike, I'm curious. When we first decided to do this, you said, oh, my wife will be so happy that I'm reading more. Is she proud of you? Uh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Well, it, it's, it, it, it all, all depends on when I'm reading. Oh. So, uh, so, you know, there's times when I could probably be doing more with the baby. Yes. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, there's never too much to do. Uh, no, but no, but, no, but no. it's good. You know, it, it's a book I've already read. Uh -huh. uh, so just rereading it and diving deeper into it. You know, she, she, she loves these, these chapter chats, you know, like yeah. always, always hears me down here screaming. Uh, yeah. so it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I love it. And how is the baby? She's doing good. She's getting real big and chunky. Yeah. How real big. Almost six months old. She's going to be six months on August 12th. Oh, okay. Okay. Very So good. she's almost six and she's, she's like 18 pounds. Oh, <laughs> so she's, she's getting there. She's not so missing she, any meals. Is not she? missing any meals. She <laughs> never turns down food. She stares at me uh, when I'm eating. Stare I like even it. even when I'm drinking coffee out of a can. Right. She, right. She'll try. She'll try to grab the can. Oh. <laughs> so she's she loves her food. I love it. I love it. I oh love yeah, it. she's so, great. I if you saw my post on Sunday, I just have to tell everybody why my fingernails are so crazy because I don't normally look like a clown. But my son Aaron, who is autistic, he's 16 years old and he loves the Olympics. So when I went to get my nails done last week, he always asked, "What color are you going to get this week?" You know, and I said, "Oh, I think I'll get pink." And he said, "Or you could get the colors of the Olympic rings." And I was like, "That's a lot of colors." And he's like, "Wouldn't it be great?" So here I am with my Olympic love color. It. I love fingernails. it. The Olympics have been awesome so far. They have been so yeah. fun. And this is the first year he's really into it. He comes down and he wants to watch. He doesn't watch like, because it's long. You know, the triathlon is like hours, it seems like. you know? Oh, so yeah. He, oh, he yeah. comes down and watches. He loves the swimming. He loves the equestrian. Yep. Um, he was really, I think, most mesmerized by skateboarding. That was the one that yeah. blew his yeah. mind. So yeah. it's been fun. It's been it, fun. It's been awesome. I've, I've seen some of the swimming. I've seen some of the beach volleyball. Yep. Uh, some of the uh, the rowing and the crew. Uh huh. The uh -huh. athletes and oh, I saw uh, Simone Biles yesterday. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was just it, it's just unbelievable. These athletes. It is. It's neat. It's neat. So if you're just joining us, we are almost finished with our first book of our book. Yeah. It's called How Children Succeed by Paul Tuff. So Mike, this week we are um, talking about chapter four, and this chapter is called 
how to succeed. So what did you think of this chapter? This, this is what you call one of those, uh, hitting hard chapters. Yeah. So this chapter really, 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 uh, paint. So the previous chapters talk all about, uh, preschool, early education up until high school. And now this one starts with the college conundrum. So it talks about all the problems with American education. And then once they graduate and it's time for college, there is a serious, serious problem. Uh, and I posted about it today on my Instagram. Yes, you did. Amer- America leads the world, the world in college dropouts. And I basically knew that myself. You know, part of, uh, part of what happens at my practice, because I specialize in executive functioning, is I cannot tell you how many parents, how many phone calls I get around October, November, December every year of college-age students that are struggling in college. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's really, really tough. Uh, So, you know, they had really intensive IEPs. They had really intensive 504s. They had tons of accommodations. They had had one-on-one therapy that kind of pushed them through the grades with this IEP. And they go away to college. And they just fall apart because there's never any, never any executive functioning training, never any focus on independent skills. Right. Uh, and, you know, th- they had great grades. You know, they, they earned that high school diploma. Uh, but once college came around, they were not prepared. Right. What was so interesting to me is it was right as the chapter started on page 149 and it said higher education in the United States, specific to the United States now, our higher education system has ceased to be the instrument of social mobility. We have gone Mm. from leading the world in producing college graduates to leading the world in producing college dropouts. So when I saw your post today, I knew exactly what you were referring to. And so when we talk about how to succeed, we really have to figure out what we're going to do. We can't just stop at high school. Like as a parent, mm-hmm. an autistic child, this is something I have, you know, a little angst about is, okay, he gets all this support in high school, but what's going to happen to him when he graduates high school? Like what's the plan, you know, and is he going to be able to get supports? And so this was an interesting chapter because like you said, it really kind of takes us to that place we don't like to go talking about the failures you know of um uh, higher education in this country exactly and and i, I always talk to these parents and these parents are, are you know uh, they're, they're terrified they're terrified yeah. of what's happening to their child uh they were in this small little bubble of public education uh with and what is the definition of success that's a great mm-hmm. question we just had uh basically you know the way the book is talking about it is you know, being able to get a college degree and live independently. That's really what this job is talking about. You know, that's what this book is talking about. So this book is not talking about going on and becoming a millionaire or a billionaire. It's talking about, you know, graduating high school, graduating college, uh, and being able to, you know, start your own family and, you know, have a home or an apartment and live independently without adult prompting and without an adult to take care of you. Right. So uh, and, you don't, yeah. you know, if you're 30 and you still are living at home, you don't have that independence, right? That, that exactly that, that we would consider, um, you know, and making you successful. What was I think so difficult about reading this chapter, and I, I had to stop and kind of pause because um, they talk about um, educational romanticism, and mm. they said they um, on page 151 that. We in America are pushing students to go to college who aren't smart enough to be there. And that was what the the person who was quoted said. I struggle with that because that says then that the cognitive hypothesis, 
is what matters most. And the cognitive hypothesis says IQ, being smart is what matters mm -hmm. most. And what we're talking about is it's not about your IQ. What it's about is your ability to be persistent and resilient and to um, be flexible in your thinking and to be able to problem solve. So what we're talking about and what this book is all about is to be successful, you must be able to think about thinking. You must be able to have executive functioning skills so that you can deal with adversity, so that you can bounce back when life doesn't go your way. So instead of making this about, okay, you need to be smart and you need to be smart enough to go to college, well, what we need to take from this is we need to teach our students in our education system how to succeed and what is success. You know, it's great that somebody asked that question because we could spend hours just talking about what is success. I think we all agree independence, not being reliant on your parents, you know, to pay your auto insurance or, you know, to give you free rent or to buy your groceries for you. You know, we all independence is a huge component of what it means to be successful. But wouldn't you agree, Mike, that being successful is also being happy with your life. Like Absolutely. I mean, if you're in a job yeah. that makes you yeah. miserable, I don't care how much money you make. If you're miserable, you don't have success, right? So yep. yeah, what is success? And you guys chime in. I would love to know what somebody else just asked. What is success? Um, is it money? Is it a college degree? Is it happiness? Is it um, independence? You know, what do you guys think su success is? Because um, uh, our society here in America says you need to get a college degree to be successful. But how many students do we know who graduate and can't find a job or who are making $15 an hour with a four-year degree and they're $150,000 in debt, right? So what, what does it mean to be successful? And what is the goal of schooling? What is the goal of education? Just to pass yeah. standardized tests, yeah. because that's what the cognitive hypothesis says: is as long as they do good on their ACT and their SAT, they're they're successful. Well, we have plenty of studies that have shown that that's not what leads to success. There you go. For in all of the families I speak to, the number one concern they have is, is my son or daughter going to to be able to persist and live when I'm gone. That's, oh. ev that's every parent's dream. So that's the number one thing. So we have someone here. I have three kids. One has a college degree. Two didn't, but all have jobs, productive members of society. So there you I go. Like that's, that. that's, really, that's really exactly what it's all about is, yeah. you know, when the parents are no longer able to be the parent, whether, you know, no matter what happens, can this child persist and go on and live an independent life? That's and really, decisions, right? and make and decisions and be a productive member of society. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's really what it's all about. So so on, on page 153 here, it talks about uh, so uh, being successful. It has to do instead with the same list of character strengths. So there we are again talking about executive functioning as character strengths. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes we have to remind ourselves, Paul Tuff is a journalist. He's not a clinician. He, right. ref he, re he refers to them as character strengths that produce high GPAs in middle and high school. Uh, and then it says high school grades reveal much more than mastery of content. Yep. And there. Oh. See me? Yep. Now I can. Are we yeah, good? I have that, that paragraph starred right there that you're reading right now. All right. There you go. So they reveal qualities of motivation and perseverance, as well as the presence of good study habits and time management skills that tell us a great deal about the chances that student will uh, complete a college program. So there you go. That's exactly what it is. So motivation, perseverance, time management skills. All right. three of those 
are separate executive function skills. Self-motivation, a core executive function skill. Perseverance mm-hmm. is what happens after you initiate a non-preferred task. Right. And let's be and let's be honest, academic tasks are non-preferred tasks. Yeah, no when are they preferred? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Work, writing a report, you know, whether yep. we do it for work or whether we do it for school, those are all non-preferred tasks, but we do them because we must, because we have to, just like we have to do laundry and we have to do the dishes and we have to get the oil changed in the car. So when we talk about what makes a member of society productive, it's when I think about it, now that you've said that to me, it's somebody who willingly completes non-preferred tasks without having to be harassed or harangued or, you know, constantly given a list of things to do. Can you do that? And it is such an important skill and something we don't even bother teaching. Exactly. Isn't that why which this chapter, you know, I kind of struggle with because they make it seem like going to college is the only way to be successful. And for me, it's not so much about just getting the college degree. It's about finishing what you start. It's about knowing what your passion is and learning everything you can, you know, to be successful, uh, whatever that passion is. And so um, I think that uh, being able to, uh, you know, we talk about, you know, we've been talking about all along in early childhood, how do executive functions come to play? Um, it's really about can they finish? Uh, even start with finishing preferred tasks. If you're going to start with your Legos, can you finish? Can you play for more than seven seconds? You know, can you exactly look that you start? So we start looking at that ability to persevere, to be resilient, to be tenacious, whatever word you want to use there. There's a lot of synonyms for that, but those are those character strengths or, you know, executive functions or non-academic skills. There's another term they use a lot. I actually prefer that term because when we talk about education, right, we're talking about being successful in school so you can be successful later in life. To me, we need to counter academic prowess, you know, good grades, strong ACT scores, strong ACT, uh, SAT scores with the non-academic skills. Because what Absolutely. we need to say, the non-academic skills, we're going to call them executive functions, character traits, whatever you want to call them. But those non-academic skills are actually what make you successful. And in order to get good grades in high school, you have to have those character traits. I have already yep. said over and over, I did not score well on my ACT. Like, I mean, but I was almost a straight A student. So it's, you know, if you want to look at my ACT score to determine if I'm smart, you're going to tell mm-hmm. me I should have gone to college, that I wasn't going to be successful. My success in college, my success in grad school, my success, you know, having my own business is not because I take tests well. My success is because I have very strong executive function skills. And I know that about me, but yet nobody taught me those traits. So I was one of the, lucky ones who didn't need a mentor, who somehow it was ingrained in me, you know, to have as a first person in my family to go to college. So somehow it was ingrained in me. But most students and oh, I had to I had to underline this, Mike, let me find the page because this comes up in almost every single chapter, page 159. Okay. Um, There's this belief that underperforming high school students can relatively quickly transform themselves into highly successful college students, but that is almost impossible for them to make that transition without the help of a highly effective teacher. How many people does it take? There you go. There you go. We are talking about one teacher, one Mm -hmm. therapist, one parent, one person who says, dude, you can do this. I mean, you've got this, right? You, what do you want in life? What do you, you have to be able to talk about it. You have to be able to talk about perseverance and what is it going to take? You know, what are your goals? Do we talk about goals? You know, this is why, and I know I'm on a rampage now, but 
I'm like, as a therapist, if you work with older students, so I work with toddlers and preschoolers, but after age five, your students better, your clients better know why they come to speech therapy. Exactly. Play games. They need to be able to say, I'm here because I'm working on X, Y, and Z. Your clients that come to you, Mike, they're high schoolers, they're college students. They darn well better know why they're. Oh, they know. Oh, they know. Coming to go bowling or to hang out with you guys. What are you here (laughs) to work on? And why do you want to work on those skills? And when we can get our clients and our students more invested in their progress, guess what? Great things are going to happen. There you go. And that's exactly what it is. So the the number of the two things I always preach. So I'm always talking, I'm I'm always giving statistics about executive functioning, ADHD, and everyone always says, you know, what what are some actual strategies? What do I do? How do I actually teach this? What do I do? It's all about relationships, like that one teacher we talked about. It takes one teacher, relationships and experiences, relationships and experiences. And we're talking about these character strengths, these not these uh, these cognitive skills, these non-academic skills, motivation, perseverance, time management. These things are not explicitly taught in today's no. education period. And There needs to be, it it needs to be embedded into the curriculum. Instead, instead we are force feeding preschoolers, letters, numbers, phonemic awareness, all these things that their brain is not even ready for, but we know what helps a kid persist in college. And I, I can tell you right now, time management skills, perseverance, those words were never discussed never. from kindergarten until until 12th grade. No. So the American model is this lecture, listen model. Yep. Teacher lectures, lectures, lectures. How fast can you take notes? It brings me back to SLP grad school. Right. right. Trying to write down every single word the professor was saying. So I was so concerned about right. getting a 4.0 in grad school, right. even though that, even though that meant nothing. But exactly. that's but that's exactly what it is, is. Uh, everyone, this lecture listen model of how fast can I listen to this teacher? How fast can I write down every single thing he or she is saying just so I can memorize this information, regurgitate it back onto a test, and then two days later forget it all? And that's really, and it's just, it's this constant grind because of this cognitive hypothesis and the lecture listen. Right. But if we explicitly teach a, ch- a child to motivate themselves towards non-preferred tasks, to persevere through non-preferred tasks, to manage their time so that they can get non-preferred tasks done before preferred tasks, right. you have done the work for you. And then this whole and then the rest of education flows beautifully. And, ch- and children start to develop the growth mindset, which was mentioned again in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the importance of the growth mindset is not about, hey, I need to get straight A's on everything. Hey, right. I, I need to be able to memorize everything. I have to get perfect grades. It's all a process. And that's have, a there you go. hypothesis that says what matters most is being smart. And what I think we have to really step back and say is, is that what matters most? Because since I work with the little ones, preschoolers, um, you know, toddlers, this is what I hear from parents all the time. Oh, I know he's having trouble, you know, learning to talk, but he's so smart. Oh, but Mm -hmm. he's so smart. You should hear how smart my little, oh gosh, he's so smart. Everybody says, oh, he's so smart, 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 smart. Here we go again. I mean, it's as though being smart is the most important thing to be. Is that really, is being able to, um, you know, uh, uh, 
list off all the presidents and the vice presidents, being able to tell you the capital of every state, you know, be, I mean, is that, re is that really what makes you successful in life is having trivia knowledge, you know, memorized and being able to regurgitate it on a test. Is that what makes you successful? And that's what the cognitive hypothesis says is being smart is what matters most. And what Mike and I are challenging with the books that we are picking in our book club is that there is more to success than being smart your iq is pretty much set early in life it doesn't mm -hmm. change a lot but what can change is your ability to think about thinking right your metacognitive skills your ability to self-analyze your ability to persist we know we can teach those so why do we not have an executive function curriculum why is there not a curriculum that is actually designed to teach students how to be successful there you go. Exactly. So, and, and we have to look at exactly what's happening here. So we have kindergarten through 12th grade, and then we have college and call and in, and obviously public school, public schooling until 12th grade and then college look very, very different. Mm -hmm. So in, from kindergarten to, uh, to 12th grade, you have the lecture, listen model, public school, IEPs, 504s, college, you're on your own. Yep. High, ch high percent chances are that you're dorming. You have office hours with your professor. You build more relationships with them. them. If, if you, you use them, them, if you use them, of course. But because it's more initiation. Exactly, but it's more of a it's more of a like a deeper relationship with your professor than it is in high school and those sorts of mm -hmm. things. Uh, and then you know you're on your own. You're you're socializing. You're away from your family. You're not getting constant prompting from your parents because you're there. You're on the college campus. So one thing on page 161 here, they talk about in America, there is an increasingly dire mismatch between American high schools and American colleges and universities. So oh. this and so this is the huge part. This is super important. So current when the current high school system was developed, so the system that's still in place today, the primary goal was to train the students not for college, uh. but for but for the workplace where at the time, critical thinking and problem-solving abilities were not highly valued. So there you go. So that's exactly what it is. The current schooling system teaches students to enter the workforce, to enter the workforce and follow someone else's lead. Follow orders, check in, check out, clock in, clock out, and leave. No critical thinking, no thinking outside the box, no standing up for yourself, none of those sorts right. of things. And, so, the, and, and the traditional American high school was yes. never intended to be a place where students would learn how to think deeply or develop internal, internal motivations or persevere when faced with difficulty. All the skills needed to persist in college. There and, you have it. And it's so crazy because in the very next sentence, and I have the word wow written in my book, yep. instead, high school was a place where, for the most part, are you ready for this? Students were re rewarded for just showing up and staying awake. Boom. Boom. Okay, so now you're there in you college go. and there you, you have don't it. have anybody, you know, to your mom or dad to wake you up, to, you know, make sure you get to school in time, catch the bus. You don't have teachers calling to see where you are. So you're not going to get rewarded for, you know, just showing up and staying awake. If you don't do the work, you're going to, you're going to fail. I can't remember if I told you this story or not, Mike, but, and if so, I apologize, but I'm going to, I'm going to tell it again. Cause I know we have some different listeners tonight. Um, <laughs> there was a 60 minutes or, you know, one of those Sunday night news shows on once. And, um, it was, uh, it was basically about, you know, what's wrong with, um, or what's, 
what the problem is with so many of our colleges, our universities, and here in the United States. And this one professor, and he was either from Stanford or, you know, his, I don't know. Anyways, he got on, he said, well, I'm really struggling because he said, um, I give students grades based on their work, you know, their performance. Okay. And so, um, I, I don't give you grades for just showing up, you know, I mean, you have to do the work. So he gave one of his, um, students a D because that's what she earned, you know, on the test, she got a D. He got a phone call from the, the college student's mother and said, my husband and I would like to fly in and have a talk with you about our daughter's grade. And he said, um, I don't do that in college. You know, that maybe is what you did in high school, but we don't, you know, we're not, we don't talk about grades with parents, you know, in college. And the, the mom got very upset and said, my daughter said she's never missed a class. She should get a B for at least showing up. Is that there you go. the craziest thing you've ever heard that we're going to give you a B just for showing up? Because that's what basically happens in high school. If you show up and turn in most of your work, you know, we'll at least pass you on to the next grade, whatever. Well, I'm sorry, when you get to college, professors aren't going to just give you a B for showing up, you know, and staying awake. So, um, yeah, our high schools are not designed to prepare uh, students for college. So this is where then the AP classes come in. Oh, well, if you think yes. you want to go to college, now you have to take these AP classes, right? And so then we get this even bigger divide, right? So now you've got the students in school who take AP and the students who don't. High school should be high school, right? Instead exactly. of dividing you out and saying, well, exactly. you're, you're going to be successful and you guys are not. We're already putting you in this lower track. So you're not going to be successful. That's exactly what it is. And and it, it sounds so blunt and it sounds so shocking to read. Just showing up and staying awake. And that's yep. really exactly what it is. And there's there's people working in schools now that are so like SLPs especially that are so sick of the grind. And they see yep. these IEPs and you know, IEPs uh were all of us SLPs were sort of born into this system of IDEA and IEPs and 504s. Right. And yes, we, we're, we're, uh, we're figuring out who needs help. We're providing therapy, all those sorts of things. Right. But there are flaws to the system. And especially when it comes to these internal invisible disorders of kids that do have strong IQs, but have weak executive functioning. And executive functioning not being a part of the overall curriculum and not being something that's discussed overall. Kids with ADHD are falling through the cracks. Kids with executive functioning development, this developmental delay are falling through the cracks. And kids with more severe difficulties uh, are not getting the inclusion they need, right. just like how they're separated with AP and, the, and, uh, and, and honors classes and remedial mm -hmm. classes. Uh, kids with some with you know people that follow an IEP are spending more time in IEP meetings, meetings than yeah. working with the actual students. That's right. And all of these schools now that are going through due processes and remediation and getting sued because of IEPs, it's 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 a real problem out here in Pennsylvania of, of schools constantly oh. being. It's it's really bad, and it, it's it's it it's all part of this system, and it's it's this is what happens when you constantly are assigning students labels, when yep. you're constantly giving them numbers, you're putting a label on them, whether it's a diagnosis or a standard deviation or a standard right. score, and we are obsessed with testing, 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 instead of building relationships with the students, uh, observing them, and using your clinical judgment 
to help this student and giving them the executive functioning. We're throwing these kids into these ridiculous social skills groups that do nothing. We're right. providing these insane accommodations that they will and never get. Social in skills. Mike, I have yeah. to jump in here because yeah. having an autistic son, having a social skills group where you teach neurodivergent kids like mine and who is, you know, my son has a different neurotype. He's autistic. He's never going to act like neurotypical peers under any circumstance. So to put my kid in a social skills group to try to make him mask his autism and act more neurotypical, that's not helpful at all. I'm not interested in any social group that's going to try to change my son. We mm -hmm. have so much work to do um, to figure out how children succeed. So look at this, Mike, on page 168. I just love this sentence so much. Oh, there's so much good stuff in here. But one of the things I have highlighted is um, the important bit, um, uh, the importance of real life experiences. And that's in the middle of the page there on 168. You and I talk about this a lot. And you use mm -hmm. that is my mm -hmm. favorite, varied experiences, right? Real life experiences. If you want to yep. give your kid an advantage in life, then give him real life experiences, right? Um, instead of buying him another Xbox game, how about, you know, take a trip and go see the Badlands in South Dakota or go, I don't know, to a museum or um, play Monopoly. I don't know. Experiences are going to be so much more powerful than giving them things, right? Stuff. So on that page, then on page 168, this is my favorite sentence in the whole chapter. Non-cognitive skills like resilience and resourcefulness and grit are highly predictive of success. And I think that um, that resourcefulness is a word that I use in my play seminar. So um, one of the things I talk about is I grew up in the 70s. I mean, I was a kid. I was born in 1971. And I always say our generation was so resourceful because I did not have a toy room full of toys. My parents didn't buy a bigger house so they could turn one of the bedrooms into a toy room. I didn't have a ton of toys, you know? I mean, I had a doll. I had a ball. I had a hula hoop. I had a etch a sketch. I had, I mean, you know, I had a slinky. I don't know. I mean, I had some toys, but for me, play was not about material items. Play was about who are you going to go hang out with? Play was yep. more social. Yep. And so for me and my friend, Rachel, my friend, Danielle, they were my best friends when I was a kid. And like, if we were outside playing, we didn't have sidewalk chalk. That was not a thing. It didn't exist when I was a kid. Okay. So guess what? We were resourceful. So what we did is we would scour the neighborhood looking for the perfect white rock that we could write on mm. sidewalk with so we could draw hopscotch, so we could draw four squares, so we could draw on the driveway like kids do today. But what do they, they, they hand them all this colorful sidewalk chalk and go, here you go. So there's no resourcefulness needed. And this is one of the issues. The more stuff we give our kids, the less they, the less they have to rely on their own problem solving skills. They don't have to develop resourcefulness, right? They don't have to figure out, oh, what am I going to do? This part to this toy is broken. I guess I'll just throw it away. No, you're going to find a substitute. You're going to make something else work for it, right? You're going to, you're going to solve the problem. So one, I think all of this, and when Mike and I write our book, which we are talking about, um, it has to start building executive function skills. You don't start in high school. There you, you go. Start when they're toddlers. You start during play. You start developing these skills early on. So we have to stop giving kids everything. We have to stop raising children who are entitled and think they're owed something because you're owed nothing. Yeah, I mean, Google everything. I love that comment. 
when I when my daughters were in high school, they're in college now, but when they were in high school and they would complain about having to do a research paper, I would always say, oh, no, 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 no. You do not get to complain about doing research because when I was in high school, even when I was in college where we had to do a lot of research, I had to actually go to this place called the library and I had to use a yeah. card catalog and I would have to go through every single card looking for a book that just might have something to do with the topic I'm researching. And then you had to figure out the Dewey Decimal System, which made no sense at all, but you'd want wander around this library looking for a book and when you finally got to the shelf to get the book off the shelf more likely than not it was checked out so you had to go back to the card catalog and start again so until you've persevered through a card catalog until you've done research without the access of google you don't even know what struggle is you know and i mean so this is one of our issues is because of our high-tech world um we we give kids everything and literally at the at their fingertips. Is that fair to say? Everything. Everything. At, at fingertips. You want food delivered? Grubhub will deliver it in 30 minutes, right? You want something, you need a new computer? Amazon will deliver it tomorrow, right? So we, we again, back to we're not delaying gratification, which is another one of those executive function skills, being able to visually, what, what is your term? Have a mental movie, be able to it, visualize um, the future and what it's going to be like and what steps do I have to take to get there? We got work to do, Mike. There you go. And I, I love that this word resilience is used so much in this chapter. So mm -hmm. to me, the word resilience is basically a synonym for executive function skills. Okay. To have someone who is truly resilient means that they have strength in several executive functions. Oh, so okay. resilience, I always define it as the ability to bounce back. Just keep it very simple. So it's the ability to bounce back. Simple as that. Like a rubber Done. bouncy ball, right? Like That's a rubber bouncy ball right, right back. Exactly. Yep. But you hear people hear that word and they associate it with someone who maybe goes through a negative experience and they're oh. able to pick themselves up. Or uh -huh. someone who uh, you know gets a bad grade on a test and then studies for the next one, those sorts of things. Right. But the most of the resilience that I'm talking about with my parents and my students is the ability to handle boredom. This oh. is what this is what we're dealing with now. And that's exactly what it is. The ability to handle boredom, sit, talk to your brain, and use your imagination. Yep. That is what scares me for future generations is yep. these kids are never bored. They right. don't know how to handle boredom. They are losing their imagination. And what is imagination? Your prefrontal cortex. Right. What is your imagination? Visual imagery, your right? visualization, your executive yep. function skills. Kids today, I see kids today that are 18 years old in AP classes, in honors classes, and we talk about a brain coach. We talk about self-directed talk. And oh. they, they say to me, I never talk to myself. Sometimes I'll think about YouTube videos. Sometimes I'll think about video games. But I am never coaching myself. I'm never having an internal See, dialogue. That needs to be explicitly taught, Mike. That needs to be. It's going to have to be now because of the world these kids are growing up in. Right. With right. Google, with screens, with instant gratification right. everywhere. So these kids so are growing up. Yeah. Commented I, before I forget because it's gone off my screen now. But somebody commented and said, back when we were in school, if you're old like me, anyways, we didn't even have computer so we had to handwrite our reports i mean i i kept some of my reports from high school and they're yeah. like 20 page handwritten reports on king henry the eighth like i know that's one that i kept and just the ability 
Do you remember how sore? I don't know. I, you know how you're, if you've ever written a report by hand. I mean, nobody does that. Oh anymore. yeah. But you want to no. talk about finishing a non-preferred task. You want to talk about time management because today you can whip out a report, you know, pretty quick because you can wait till the last second type it. It may not be high quality, but you can get it done. But when you had to hand write a ten-page report, you're not doing that last minute. So even the way we used to learn, like if we really want to teach executive function skills, maybe we say two of your papers per semester have to be handwritten. I mean, wouldn't that just be crazy if we actually did that? You need to handwrite your grocery list. You need to handwrite. What if we just went back to the basics and said there's a reason why handwriting is important? I know we live in the digital age, and I know it makes things easier, but what are we doing to um, the frontal, you know, prefrontal cortex? What are we doing when we make everything so easy and so fast? So I am, a, I am actually a huge proponent for something that I've discussed with several heads of schools uh, that I work with out here. Uh, and it's, it's a controversial topic because of what happens, but I am, I think that there should be no computers in schools, period. It's as simple as that. And now kids in the public school, their first day of school, instead of, instead of getting an agenda book, they're handed a Chromebook. And if they go to kindergarten and, and if they go to a fancy private school, they're handed a MacBook. and there's no agenda where you write things down. They go on their Google calendar that their teacher fills out for them. Their teacher, it's a shared Google calendar, and they put things on there. Everything is being done for there. Exactly. Good luck. This is is exactly what we're up against. Kindergartners have their own laptops. How ridiculous is that? That makes absolute... Look, these kids are growing up in a computer-filled world. I, I remember when my nephew was like two years old, he was better at the iPhone than my parents. He could open it. He could type in a passcode. He can swipe. These kids are going to learn. Like I remember when I was uh, when I was younger, uh, we ha- we had like a computer classroom. There was a, there uh-huh. was one classroom where there were com- there was computers, and we learned how to do Microsoft Word, Excel, right. PowerPoint, uh-huh. the basics. Kids today are going to learn that no matter what. It's unavoidable. Right. They're going to learn. So you don't need to teach it to your They don't toddler. need to teach it. It doesn't need to be taught anymore. No. They're growing up in a world that is surrounded by it. You and know what quite I honestly, it's not that hard anymore. It's so our it's, media it's, manic world. That's yes. what we live in. Our media manic world. And I am the first one to say, um, you know, uh, technology is not inherently evil in and of itself. It's how we're using it and what it's displacing. And it's screen time and what it's displacing, especially in childhood, that is so concerning to me. But you can look at family life, too, and say, what is screen time displacing? Well, everybody's in the living room together, but everybody's on their own screen. So is there conversation? Are you guys, you know, do you, are you connected? Are you bonding? It's really hard when everybody's got their face plastered to a screen. But screen time is very advantageous because look what Mike and I get to do. Mike lives in Philadelphia. I live in Kansas City. And yet look at us, you know, we've never met in person, but you know, we're we're colleagues, we're friends, we're building something. So I am never going to say technology is inherently evil. It is not. But what we have to do is be able to monitor and um, have have, um, mindfulness. Screen time mindfulness is very important. And I think that's another thing that we are going to have to add, Mike, to explicitly teach. And that becomes an executive function skill. I truly believe screen time mindfulness becomes executive function because if you can't manage your screen time, you can't manage and organize anything else in your life. You certainly can't manage non-preferred activities. So so you, you asked a great question. So screen time is not inherently evil, but we have to ask ourselves, what is it displacing? And it's displacing the two specific things that develop 
the most malleable part of the brain, the most influential part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, relationships and experiences, period. If you're on screens all day, you are not having varied experiences. And if you're, you're on screens all day playing online video games, you are not developing real relationships. Online friends are not relationships, can period. I, can period. I tell you a story about that, Mike? Because my yeah. heart is breaking. I have a friend who has a son, my son's age, so 16 years old. And um, she is distraught because he um, he's, he's autistic, um, but is in regular, he's not in any special education. He doesn't get therapy anymore. So his big issue is, and I keep telling her this because I've learned so much from you, it's it's not, he doesn't really have significant language issues. His is all executive function. He gets mm -hmm. lost in his own words. He forgets what, you know, he's not focusing on the teacher. He never completes any assignments. So he spends all of his free time in the summer, in the summer on doing video games, online gaming. Right. So he says he has all these friends and you have you've talked about this with me before that online friends are not true friends. But those are the only Correct. friends he has are these online friends. Well, because he's autistic, he doesn't quite have the social nuances. So he's asking questions to his online friends, things like, um, uh, do you care about me? And so what's mm. happening is his online friends are now refusing to play with him. Right. Because now they're saying. What is wrong with this creepy kid? Why is he asking if I care about him? And, yep. you know, things like that. So the problem is he thinks they're his friends. And he tells his mom, I have lots of friends, mom. Um, they're my friends. They're my online friends. And they care about me. So I'm going to ask them. And they don't care. They don't. It doesn't matter who you are as long as you're playing. Right? I mean, so this is concerning to me that we're raising a generation of kids who think that people online are your friends. It's it, it and the worst part about it is there are so many parents that are afraid to use more authoritative parenting strategies and authoritative parenting it tends to be like a like a like a word you hear and everyone's like whoa 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 authoritative mm -hmm. parenting it's actually the most research based effective parenting yep. method and it's yep. not authoritative it's actually more collaborative mm -hmm. so the word it's, it's it's bad choice of words but authoritative parenting has many, many benefits. And parents want more permissive parenting. So, so they want their kid, uh, they've, create, they've created these environments where kids have open access to screens, right. which is the opposite of screen timeline for this, which is that, that great thing you said before. So when there's open access to games, kids with no self-regulation skills, kids with no delayed gratification skills will not be able to say, hey, I have to do my summer reading. Hey, I have to go outside. Hey, I can go see my friend in person. No, it's so much easier to lay in bed, sit on the couch, and play the Xbox because it's right there, period. But you said the key word, that it's easier. So here's the problem yep. that we're seeing is once, because human beings by nature, we do agree with the statement, human beings by nature will always take the path of least resistance. Yep. Okay, so Especially once a human brain has figured out, I can get those dopamine sports pretty quick by playing these video games, but if I have to go, it makes, wait, once you realize you can get your fix of that, that happy hormone, right, that dopamine sport, then it makes doing something that's either imaginative, like drawing or, you know, um, uh, coloring or playing Legos and building something, or it makes having to do something where you actually physically have to exert your body, like ride a bike or skateboard. It makes all of that seem like too much work because I am used to this 
sedentary lifestyle where I don't have to move, where I don't have to think, where I don't have to be creative, where I'm never bored. So the yep. human beings by nature will always take that path of least resistance, right? Oh, this is this makes me happy. This is fun. I don't run out of breath. I don't have to be creative. So I want this. Well, what are we doing to make sure that there is balance? in our lives, right? Because we live in a mediumatic world and screen time mindfulness is about making sure that every one of us has a balance. We need nature, we need real people, we need relationships, and we need varied experiences. And screen time can never, under any circumstance, provide all that. And here's what I say to parents who try to argue with me and say, oh, but Miss Carrie, that's what they say. But Miss Carrie, we live in a different era now. We live in a different time. This is the yep. digital age. This is the That's high exactly school. what I was getting at. Here's yep. what I say. Are you ready for this? You are so right. I always agree with parents when they say this. You are right. Um, technological know-how is one type of intelligence. But, but, here's the caveat, right? Your child also needs to develop gross motor skills, fine motor skills. They need to develop their executive functioning skills. They need to be able to develop imagination and creativity. They need to develop functional communication skills. And, um, you know, I can go on and on. They need to develop social skills. They need to um, be able to develop resiliency, all of that. And none of those things, not one of them can be developed while sitting, set, sitting sedentary in front of a screen. So exactly. nobody's arguing that um, technological know-how isn't important or isn't a type of intelligence. It is. We live in the digital age and you're going to get it. Whether you want to get it or not, you're going to get technological know-how. So why are we focusing so much on that? We need to focus on the skills that our kids aren't getting today, right? All exactly. Exactly. So this, this chapter talks about the importance of resilience and the opposite of resilience is the fixed mindset. And it's, it's basically today's student. And I say this over and over and over again. You know, when I have a parent intake contact me, one of the first questions I ask is, what does a typical day look like for your student? What are they doing in a typical day? Video games, computer, eating, sleeping. That's it. No outside, no playing with friends, no exercise, none of those things. And if you are playing video games all day, if all of your friends are online, if uh, you stay within your comfort zone every single day, it's possible to stay within your comfort zone. It's possible to play video games four or five hours a day and still get really, really, really good grades in school. Because you can have an IEP with tons of accommodations, 504 with a ton of accommodations. You go home. Uh, you can hand things in late. Uh, you don't get penalty for missing assignments. Uh, you play video games all afternoon. And I, this has happened to me. Uh, yeah. And you can, you can graduate high school without having a true friendship, a true relationship. You never hang out with a friend after school because you're always online. And then you can get accepted into a ton of schools because they see your grades. And then you're going to really, really struggle that first year of college. And that's what this book is all about. Kids are, not, yeah. kids are not developing resilience within schools because kids today are not having varied experiences. And without varied experiences, there are no interpersonal relationships. So somebody asked, how do we break this cycle? So the most important thing is we, the, so here's the thing. The book also talks about, it takes one person. Yep. It takes one person. All of these kids, whether it's autism, ADHD, executive functioning, developmental delay, have lists upon lists upon lists of strengths, period. But their entire life, they have been going for 
the instant gratification, which is the screen. I'm not going to get involved with soccer. I'm not going to get involved in Boy Scouts. I'm not going to get involved with chess. I'm not going to get involved with robotics. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to learn how to go on hikes. I'm not going to go swimming. I'm not going to go to the beach. I'm not going to meet new people because I can wake up and I can have a great day in front of a screen. Right, so right. what what can we do? If you're a speech pathologist, start doing your sessions somewhere else. Get rid of the worksheet. Get rid of the pen and paper. Get rid right. of the desk. Do something new. Do some yoga in your sessions. Do some sports in your sessions. If you're a teacher, get your class outside. But most importantly, if you're a parent, it is time for screen time mindfulness. And there are some parents, because of how bad this year has been with screens with COVID, I'm telling them this summer is your chance to do a full-on screen detox. This is a a screen detox summer. Take the phone away. Take the video games away. Every day your kid has to go outside. Yeah, I have done a lot of research on digital detox, and the psychiatrists that I have um, really been reading a lot of their information, they recommend a 72-hour digital detox, because yeah. in that 72 hours, you're going to figure out real quickly whether your child's addicted or not, because they exactly. will, it's addiction, they will go yeah. through withdrawal, their behaviors will be unacceptable, they will hit and kick and throw, and then you'll know they truly are addicted. So, And that's um, the hardest part for parents. The hardest yeah. part for parents is dealing with with those initial initial behaviors and seeing their their children uncomfortable and seeing yeah. their kids upset, seeing them you know get incredibly dysregulated. But do you want them to struggle and now, sometimes violent? But or do you want to you want them to struggle in life? Do you know what exactly. I mean? This is the time when they are developing. Yes. So this is the time we have to make the changes. You can't say, "Well, we'll just deal with that next year." Or we'll just deal with that once he's an adult; he'll figure it out. No, that's the problem. Our our, our kids aren't figuring it out. The one thing I wanted to say, I made a note so I wouldn't forget, is that. We are going to have to find a way, Mike, to make sure that executive function skills are considered educationally relevant. Because the only way an SLP is going to be able to work on it, the only way we're going to be able to get this added, you know, as goals on an IEP or, uh, you know, accommodations on a 504 is if um, executive functions are actually considered educationally relevant. So when we talk about how are we going to break the cycle, how are we going to make this change, I think this is what we really need to focus on, Mike, as we continue to um, advocate for these changes is that E. EFs must be explicitly taught and they must be considered educationally relevant. There you go. And this book touched on it in terms of things like a character report card uh, yep. or, you know, and different EF things. report card is what and, I put in my notes. If we yep. want to do it, you have your grade report card, your academic report card. We need a non-academic report card, which will be your executive function report card. And that's something that I think students, especially as they get older, they should be grading themselves. They should be analyzing their behavior and talking about it with their mentor. And, you know, we're going to have, we have so many mental health issues in this country because we just sweep everything under the rug. We don't talk about it. We don't, we just don't deal with it. We're going to have to start talking about the hard stuff, right? Um, our kids need mentors and if they're not going to be parents, they need to be teachers. I don't know. We got to find, we got to figure out a way and, um, it needs to happen because we're going in the wrong direction educationally in this country. That's exactly what it is. And, and right now, uh, I remember when I was first in grad school, people talked about, uh, what they called like the uh, autism tsunami, basically, of what happens to kids with autism after they graduate from IEP services. Uh, like uh, I remember someone said, if you have a Down syndrome diagnosis, there's more opportunities for you. But if you have an autism diagnosis after the IEP is gone, 
you re- there's really not a lot of support and not a lot of things going on outside of like an ABA sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But now we're dealing with an even larger group of kids that have zero executive functioning, zero resilience, zero grit, because they were caught up in this instant gratification world with the cognitive hypothesis. Right. So those two things together, when this book was written, it was really just the cognitive hypothesis. Right. But now we, have a, a now we have yet. a double whammy of the cognitive hypothesis plus the instant gratification world. And if mm-hmm. there's instant gratification, there's no, like I have literally worked with kids in my practice that are uh, about to graduate high school. And I know these families very well. They have literally never done a non-preferred task in their entire life. And that sounds, that sounds insane saying that, but I can tell you, I, I work with these kids and they run the show at home. They do whatever they want. They go to school when they want. They, they, uh, they've never done a chore. They've never hung out with a peer outside of what they wanted to do. They just, their parents just feed into every single want and need. And that's an extreme case. Yes, most parents do have some structure. Uh, but the number one thing, especially during this summer, especially after the summer we had last year and the school year we had last year, schools need to do a better job. Parents have to do a better job. And we as therapists have to do a better job of giving these kids unique experiences. Why is it not mandatory for schools to have kids do some sort of community service and get involved in their community? Uh, why is it, we talked about peer mentors and, uh, and, and peers and best buddies programs to get to know each other. We talk about more project-based learning. Uh, we've talked about more internships. You know, the, uh, we talked about the difference between high school and college before. College is unique because you're choosing your major. You're choosing what you want to study. You're choosing what you want to get involved in. And part of college is the externship. And I look back at getting my master's degree in, in SLP. The, you have to do two externships. You have to do mm-hmm. one with adults and you have to do one with kids. Right. I, le- I would not be the SLP I was today if it was not for those externships. Period. Not because of the classes where I studied and took notes and I learned about, you know, all these different things that that I don't don't remember anymore just so I could pass the praxis. It's super duper important for these kids to start having varied experiences. Schools need to change the way they do things. And honestly, we talk about we talk about this all the time. All of the suggestions that you and I are, are giving for them to improve their executive functioning are cheap. They are affordable, and they're probably in the long run going to save them money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, again, I think I say this every every week at book club, but we need to actually be asking parents, and then we need to coach them to ask themselves this every day: is how many um, non screen experiences did my child have today? Yeah. You need to be able, you, and you need to be able to you're, you need to train your your child as they get older to ask. Okay, so have I had a balance? Because get the the you know the little weight thing, the little balance, right? Wes, when you say, okay, you've had four hours of screen time, you need four hours of non screen time experiences. That doesn't include meal time and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it balance. If you don't have four extra hours, then you can only have two hours of screen time, so that you can have two hours of non screen experiences. And this is where the screen time mindfulness is going to come in. Is when we can actually talk about balance screen time without having the child throw something across the room or have a meltdown of epic proportion, you know, because you're saying you need to be done with screen time. You need screen time rules in your home. Bar none, absolutely, there's no exception to that. And like Mike keeps saying, no child should have un, um, 
uh, what's the word? Um, uh, unlimited access. Is that what you yeah. say? No student, no child should ever have open access. access to screen yeah. time. Yeah. And your rules need to be things like when your show is over, you need to turn the TV off. When you finish that report or that whatever you're working on, if it's a school related thing, you need to turn off your Chromebook. You know, so it's about when you're done with that, you need to be able to visualize what are you going to do next. You know, what's on your agenda? What are you what are you going to do today? So when my son wakes up every morning this summer, I'm like, so what's your plan for today? Well, it's going to be hot, so we'll get in the pool. I said, yes, I can't wait. We'll definitely get in the pool. What else are you planning today? Well, I really wanted to watch that movie. I hadn't seen whatever movie for a while. Okay, so that's going to be screen time. So what else are you going to do today? Well, I'm definitely going to take the puppies outside and play. So, you know, I mean, this is what we do is we have a conversation every morning over breakfast. What is your plan for today. And so um, we we just have to, I don't know, Mike, we have to converse, we have to educate our students, our kids, and we have to be positive and encouraging role models for them. There you go. And uh, one more thing from this chapter that I found absolutely fascinating. On page 172, it started to talk about hours spent studying in college. So this okay. is fascinating. In, oh, 19, yeah. in 1961, the average full-time college student spent 24 hours a week studying outside the classroom. Okay. By 1981, that had fallen to 20 hours, and in 2003, down to 14 hours a week. Not much more than half of what it was 40 years ago. This phenomenon transcended boundaries. Study time fell for students from all demographic subgroups. So, and then it goes, and then they asking, where did all those extra hours go? They were, they were, they were studying 24 and it was going down to 14 a week. Uh, so where did all those extra hours go to socializing and recreation mostly? So yes, there was more computers for fun and things like that. But I took from this, this is what I took from this. So this was a study on the kids that persisted through college. This mm -hmm. was not a study on the kids that dropped out for a semester. These were the kids that stayed in college up until graduation, and they studied, and they watched them to see how often they were studying. So these were kids that were in high school, that were part of the public school system, part of the lecture-listen model, the cognitive hypothesis. Right. They were, they were plopped on a, a, college, uh, a college campus, and they were finally able to live independently away from parents. And what were they so unbelievably thirsty for, excited for, and craving? It was socializing and recreation. These kids were dying to get out, meet each other, meet new people, and try new things. And, and, and they were willing to risk their grades for it. And they were risking their study time for it. You know, yes, this, a lot of this does, you know, it talks about pursuing various hobbies some computers for fun, six hours exercising. So these college students are taking it upon themselves to go exercise. It's not mm -hmm. mandatory in college. There's no right. gym class. They're right. taking it upon themselves for recreation. They're joining clubs on campus. They're getting involved in the community. And it's they're taking it upon themselves because they're so thirsty for these experiences. They're so eager for these experiences. And they were stuck in high school before where they were, they were a number they were a statistic, they were a part of a bell curve, and they yep. were just constantly cranking out grades, 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 so I can go to college one day. And now these kids that persisted, that had the resiliency to persist, were doing whatever they could to socialize, 
and have varied experiences. And that to me, that is a fascinating study. It really is. And somebody asked while you were talking, Mike, what about toddlers? Are they expected to like tell you what they're going to do during the day? No, 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 no. That's no, no, no. With toddlers, who needs to have the plan is the parent, is the caregiver. And so, you know, uh, every human being thrives on structure. So, you know, you have breakfast about the same time every day, even if it's summer, right? You get dressed after you have breakfast, you brush your teeth after you, you know, get dressed or whatever your routine is. Children need to learn their routines. And they say, okay, so now we have free time um, before we go to the park. What do you want to do? So what do we do? We give toddlers choices. You can either color, play stickers, or you can go outside and play in the sandbox. So we start giving them choices. And what are your alternatives? And they say, iPad, iPad, you say, oh, I know you like the iPad. That's not a choice right now. You can either, right? So we give them, we give them choices that fit into the routine. And when you have screen time family rules, you say, oh, you get iPad after nap. Right. So you tell them when it's coming, you can put a make a visual schedule if you need to. So you can show them, oh, you watch Peppa Pig while you eat your snack at 10 o'clock. It's not 10. Look, here's mommy's. I know you can't tell time, but here's my clock. It's not 10 o'clock yet. We can set the microwave timer if you want, but it's time to play now. And the child may cry and have a little meltdown. And we call that we we, we, we comfort them and say, I'm, I'm sorry this upset you, but this is the rule. And we move on, you know, and, and there isn't um, we don't appease young children. We don't keep young children from crying. They're learning how to deal with tough emotions and it's hard to be told no but you better learn in life that the world does not revolve around you right so exactly. we have to teach them when they're toddlers to be able to follow routines follow schedules be told no be told you need to wait um you know and if you have to add the visual schedule in um adding in those accommodations um they're very helpful um for all children not just autistic children all children benefit from visual schedules so they know what their day is going to look like and we've totally normalized the schedule of dinner and then dessert. You get your dessert right. after dinner. Right. We've totally normalized this whole breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. You know, we wouldn't let kids eat dessert constantly. You're not right. going to let kids constantly choose what they're eating. So right. if we can have dinner and then dessert, why can't we have non-preferred tasks, outside time, tasks. exercise, and then iPad? And yep. then a break before bedtime. You don't want to have right. iPad right before bedtime. No, no, no. So that's exactly what it is. Family screen time rules needs to be no screens after seven. So you have a little garage in your kitchen where everybody plugs in their device because we don't want screens after seven because the, you're never going to go to sleep. If you're in front of your screen, the blue light. I mean, we need to just create rules. Their family, no screens at the dinner table, no screens after seven, no screens in the bedroom, right? You just make the rules and everybody, including mom and dad must follow the rules. What I have to sometimes do is tell my son, if he'll say, mom, you're on your screen again, because we're, we're big into these screen time rules is I'll say, Oh buddy, I'm returning an email for work. So what I've had to do is get better at saying, you know what? I'm not going to return emails after 7 PM. You know what I mean? I'm going to make everybody because we live in this world where everybody expects you to respond right away. Right? Mike, you get an email and you're like, Oh, I'll do that tomorrow because I'm getting off work now. Since I work from home, I never get off work. And my husband and I have found we need to stop doing that. We need to set rules and boundaries for our work because mm-hmm. we shouldn't be replying to emails at 830 at night. I should be spending time with my family, right? So we all have a lot to learn and to um, uh, uh, be able to create rules and follow them that are actually doable and sustainable. I would never in a million years ever say to a family, you just need to get rid of all your screens. You just need to get rid of the iPad. That is not realistic. I am not talking about being unrealistic here. What Mike and I are talking about is creating screen time mindfulness in our media manic world. And it starts with screen time rules at home. Exactly. So, so 
most basically said, if we don't explicitly teach children to delay gratification, they're in this world today, they are never going to learn. It's as simple as that. If we don't teach them to delay gratification and set up the structure, they're yep. never going to learn. And, and I here, just post. Yep. And I just go posted, ahead. No, 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 go. I just posted a lot of information, a lot of very scary information about this recently on my Instagram. And kids with ADHD, kids with executive function and developmental delay, because of their inability to delay gratification, yep. because of their lack of cause and effect thinking, they tend to have major issues with addiction down the road. Right. whether it's drugs and alcohol, and many of them do end up in jail. Many of them do end up in trouble. And this is becoming a serious, serious problem with these kids. Nobody is teaching them to delay gratification anymore, period. And nobody has ever been successful in this world, period, without the ability to delay gratification is quite possibly the most important human skill. And our ability to visualize ourselves into the future, to right. use our nonverbal working memory, and visualize ourselves achieving a distant prize, right. which, is what, which is what Dr. Russell Barkley talks about in this chapter talks about. Because what is college? College is a distant prize. So right. many people go to a college, live in a really crappy dorm or a really crappy apartment. They have very little money. They have very little food, uh, and they have to kind of really push themselves yep. through and say, "Why am I putting? Some, why am I putting myself through this so I can get that piece of paper four right. years from now, so right. I can make, so I can statistically make more money than people who don't?" That exactly. is the definition of delayed gratification. So, I just have to say, how do you start teaching delayed gratification? I'm telling you right now, it starts with. This is what I want everybody who's listening tonight, if you have your own child, tomorrow when you get in the car to take your child to daycare or to preschool or when school starts up, no screens in the car. Your child should be able to get in the vehicle with you and you should be able to sing, listen to music, stare out the window, talk about the new construction that's going up, say nothing at all. If your child can't sit in the back seat and be still without being entertained for 20 minutes on the drive to daycare or a 15 minute ride to Walmart or a half hour ride to gymnastics, then I'm telling you right now, we are setting these kids up for failure. Your child should be able to get in a vehicle. They should be able to sit in the cart at the grocery store without having your phone. You should be able to go to a restaurant without having to give your child the phone. You should be able to play tic-tac-toe and draw on you should bring little toys in your in your purse or in your backpack. You should bring crayons. We you you have to have alternatives to the iPhone. You have to have alternatives to screen time. You're the parent. You're the adult. You must plan ahead. You must visualize. We're going to a restaurant. It's a sit down restaurant. We're going to have to wait. What is my child going to do? I just give him my phone. No, you're not just going to give him his phone because what is he going to do when he goes to preschool and he has to wait for his teacher to hand out all the, 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 the crayons and the craft things. He has to learn how to be still and wait. That is how delayed gratification begins. It begins in early childhood. Exactly. And if we're not building this skill, you know, executive functions are at their prime around 25, 26. But if your child is not really able to delay gratification until, you know, 18 years old. This is something we really got to start working on in preschool, kindergarten, early, early ages. It has to start. Kids have to recognize that they do not run the show at home. They don't run the show at school. It is super duper important for them to be able to stop, visualize, talk to themselves, and wait. And, and, And the way that school works right now, the school is not focusing on that in any way, shape, or form. 
or any executive function skill, which is why we lead the world in college dropouts. And it is That's becoming right. a bigger That's and bigger right. problem every year. So, so when your child says, but I want this new toy or I want what they want something, you say, oh, well, we can't get that now, but you could draw me a picture of it so we can hang it on the refrigerator. You know what I mean? So now they're going to they're going to have to visualize well, what is this thing that I want? Or remember when we were kids and we would write our Christmas list or our birthday? Yeah. List, what do you want? How about draw it out? You know, let's let's turn it into an activity then. So um, I, I just I think that we are going to have to start giving, um, you know, we, we're going to have to create a curriculum. We're going to have to start giving yep. parents and caregivers and teachers actual specific um, activities um, yep. for building um, and explicitly teaching executive function skills. And that's so, exactly what we're doing. That's exactly yep, yep. what we're doing. Uh, and that's exactly what Paul Tuff has said in all the interviews I've heard with him. He said, we figured out what the problem is. The problem is the cognitive hypothesis. The answer is explicitly teaching executive functioning. Uh, it, it talked about the uh, in the very first chapter, there was the mind talk program mm -hmm. I talked about a little bit. Right. Great program, but executive functions, you know, unlike a, like a Wilson or an Orton Gillingham, right. executive functions are not all one size fits all. And right. it's not something that can be easily measured. And we and have to have we have to get that idea. We have to grab it out of our heads and throw it away. That's when right. we're when we're measuring executive functions, we cannot give a standard score. No. We can't give a standard deviation. You no. can't measure it. You have to just observe. That's right. And some, a kid could have strong, you know, certain skills where they're strong in EFs and other skills where they need to work on. You know what I mean? So it's not like it's all or nothing. So we need to figure out where are your strengths? You know, what do you need to improve on? Um, I'm so excited. So we're going to wrap up here. But so next week is our last week for our book. Yeah. Next week, our Crazy. final chapter. I cannot wait to reread this chapter. It's called A Better Path. So mm -hmm. I am so excited, you guys, to see if Paul Tuff is actually going to give us some um, examples and some specifics of, okay, we've already said we got problems. We got problems from toddler through college. What are we going to do about it? So I'm super excited. Um, Mike and I will be back next Monday night. This is not a terribly long chapter, um, but we will um, uh, take your questions, your comments. Make sure you send uh, Mike or me questions. You know, DM us if you have questions as you're reading, and we will finish this book do you have the next book handy mike or should i grab it off my shelf okay tell them about our second book so this book right here finish lessons 2.0 i've already started to peek through this because i'm yeah. so excited for the for the next round you know i think this was a perfect intro to the chapter chat but this book right here uh it's really it, you know it's it's all about what can the world learn from educational change in finland so finland was really digging digging itself a hole just like we are in right now they changed everything in their system right now. You know, they have improved mental health. They have improved gradu graduation rates. Uh, you know, things are really, really going, you know, COVID, of course, has turned things upside down. Sure. But in terms of their education and mental health and safety and productivity and people being productive members of society, they've really done an incredible job. And I am so excited to Me read too. this book because this book, you know, this book highlighted the problem. It's almost right. like fate is helping us to choose know, the, book, the books to read in the right order. So, oh, there we go, Finland. Oh, someone's get, there from we go. Finland. Nice. So we have oh, someone from Finland, show them the book someone again, from Finland joining so us. I love it. I love yep. it. This is yep. it's going to be. You know, this book did such a great job highlighting the core of the problem, and then this book right here is going to give us real world points on yep. what to do to fix it. 
Yep. I can't wait. Cause I have not read finished lessons. I have, um, I bought it several years ago and I like skimmed a few chapters and I, you know, I have so many books. I, I have not read them all, which is why Mike and I are doing this book club because there are so many amazing resources out there, evidence-based resources. And so Mike and I are super excited as is Allison from Molten Speech. We, we yeah, love yeah. having her with us. Um, so anyways, we're going to eventually get through all the books, I guess. I don't know. We're going to we keep going as long as you guys will keep joining us. This is available now on Spotify and um, Apple. Where, where, where can they find this as a podcast, Mike? Yep. So uh, all of these Instagram lives are saved onto your page, onto your uh -huh. Instagram page. So you can rewatch them there. I have people contacting me all week trying to find old episodes. Uh, but you can also find them on Spotify. Uh, and you can also find them on Apple Downloads. And the person who told me, uh, the person who helped uh, me put them onto Spotify and Apple Podcasts for me, told me that we're already almost up to a thousand downloads. Oh, a thousand downloads on Spotify! Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. So tell them, is it called Chapter Chat? It's called Chapter Chat. So if you go into Spotify, type in Chapter Chat, it'll come up. You'll see our blue logo. You'll see our pictures there. Uh, you could possibly. There's a couple of other Chapter Chats. So you can type in education oh. chapter chat. You can type in our okay. names. You know, you'll find it there. So chapter chat on Spotify, chapter chat on Apple Podcasts. Uh, and, and people are really liking it. You know, we're getting yeah. lots of downloads and lo lots of comments. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you can't join us live, like all you incredible people out yeah. there, and thank you for all those hearts and all those great comments yeah, today. Yeah, we appreciate we it. We love this. This is a true book club, a true yes. book club. Yeah, so, so this is our fifth episode. Our fifth Next episode. Will be our sixth episode, and that'll be the end of our first book. So we exactly. will simply be done with our first book of our new book club. It's so exciting. That's right. So, you know, we're, we're going to expect more and more and more of you guys. So tell your friends, tell your family, yes. you know, what's, yes. what's happening here on Monday nights is going to change the world, period. We're, we're on it's a mission. All, everyone, on a mission. you know, someday we're going to talk about these Monday night chapter chats and yep. we're going to think about where it all started. And it all That's started right. with you guys. Uh, right. and, and, and everyone knows whether you're a school employee or a parent or a student, you right. know that the education system is not working. The IEP, working. the IEP system's not working. The 504 is not working. And it's not just kids with autism or ADHD. It's all students. It's neurotypical. That's right. And I know we need to go, but I'm just going to reiterate that in the very first chapter, we we found out that throwing money at it is not the solution. Because exactly. they're um, in Chicago, in the south side of Chicago, they threw millions. Millions. Millions and millions of dollars. Even NASA got involved. And guess what? It changed nothing. This is not about money. And that's why we can make this work. This is about executive function. It's about the prefrontal cortex. It's about non-academic skills. Those are the things that matter most, not having smart kids who can regurgitate, you know, random facts that somebody spewed at them. So thank you for joining us. Texas Speech Mom, how awesome that you are with us tonight. That is, that is awesome. So we will see you guys next Monday night for our new favorite day of the week. TGIM, right? baby. Our, our new saying. So thank you for being here, Mike. It was wonderful as always. And um, we will see you guys next week. Okay. See you guys soon. See you next Monday. Bye, Mike.